0: Welcome to episode 0000121 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands, which is on the Wurundjeri country, the Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations. And I pay my respects to elders past and present. And I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you to Vaughan for a wonderful episode of Double Bounce. Uh, always enjoyed the bangers, always enjoyed the quiet bits, always enjoyed the, uh, well, the, uh, the offensive bits to some, which um, just shows that this station is not playlisted and we are not centered. We will play... Whatever the presenter deems fit, and Vaughan does that week in, week out. Also, remind you that uh, Radiothon is still on, and I will have the pledge uh, monitor up at some point. So if you want to donate to the station or this program throughout the course of the show, at some point I will uh, read out uh, your wonderful names for your wonderful support. Uh, Speaking of the show, we've hopefully got a great show for you tonight. Later on in the evening, I'll be joined by a friend of the show, Thomas Mayer, to talk about his latest book, Dear Son. A really interesting collection of letters and First Nations, um, from First Nations men written to their sons, and in some cases, their fathers. So we'll speak to him about that. It's all about changing the perceptions that uh, popularized through mainstream media of uh, Aboriginal men. Um, but shortly, we'll be joined by the deadly Carla Grant now, Carla has spent time on the ground at Will Kenya to ascertain and report on how the pandemic is affecting the mob on the ground there. And actually, her report on that, on Living Black, the COVID crisis in Will Kenya, will actually screen tonight at 8 pm. Uh, so if you want to finish listening to this show and then go and watch that report, um, Absolutely, do that because uh, it's uh, really important that we have people on the ground reporting on some of these issues. So, if you want to check it out, 8 pm tonight, or you can do it on uh, SBS online um, at any time. Now, speaking of COVID um, and a little closer to home, there's been some disturbing reports, uh, mainly from the ABC today, about how the vaccine, vaccination rate for Victorian Aboriginal um, people has actually been revised down as a result of a software glitch. So what does that mean for the numbers? Well, it actually means quite a bit. The ABC uh, reported um, figures released by the federal government on Sunday suggested 47,954 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in Victoria have received one vaccine dose, with 30,951 fully vaccinated. However, on Monday... Uh, those figures are being revised down to twenty thousand five hundred and fifty-nine people having received a first dose, and only twelve thousand two hundred and nine being fully vaccinated. Um, however, um, all this is a is a, is the result of a a glitch to a piece of software that is being used in some clinics across the state when they go to um, ask the 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 person receiving the vaccination, are you an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? It's a simple yes, no question. But if they leave that particular box defaulted um, uh, blank, so if they leave that box blank, the answer actually defaults to yes. Um, and apparently, while it's, uh, while it's part of a federal system, this particular software is only used in Victoria, which, of course, is just us luck. Um so the Indigenous vaccination rate in Victoria had dropped from in excess of what we thought was 60% of people having received a first dose uh, to around 45%. So it means that our mob are being well and truly left behind the rest of the population when it comes to first doses, which, which as a percentage for uh, the Victorian rate as a, as a whole is sitting around the 67%, 68% mark, and we're bound to hit 70% first dose rates any day now. So now I have to be honest with you, I've kept hearing reports from across the the state around vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax sentiments uh, across the place and within the community. But on this show, we try and stick to the facts and report on official numbers. What else are we going to do? We're not going to make up numbers, are we? Uh, But now, because of the official numbers, um, it seems that uh, that hearsay is far more consistent with uh, what we now know, which goes back to the point I raised last week. While we're heading to the 70 to 80% fully vaccinated targets for opening up, as detailed in the Doherty modelling, which has informed the national plan, um, we are still at risk of leaving segments of the community behind and therefore exposed. So therefore, it's essential that we continue to educate and outreach to those that are vaccine hesitant and encourage even the anti-vaxxers to change their minds when it comes to putting themselves at risk, or more importantly, others. So, it's important that we don't listen to those framing this as some sort of colonial conspiracy theory or those that are swayed by what they read on Facebook about the virus. We have to listen to the science and not want to be celebrities and want to be that want to make a name for themselves. We must remember, as Aboriginal people, we were the first scientists on the planet. So, why wouldn't we continue to listen to science? So, all this means we have a bigger battle on our hands to protect our community than we first thought. And this program here called The Mission will be covering those issues all the way through. Perhaps not on a weekly basis, but on a very regular basis to make sure that we keep um, you abreast of the issues and mob abreast of the issues as well. It's really important that we get the true and accurate information out there as much as possible. As always, the best way to contact me is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. Throw in a question if you have any questions for our two wonderful guests tonight. But uh, this is The Mission.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: You're listening to The Mission. Um, Here in Victoria, while we have our own problems with COVID and those problems continue to mount, we've looked up north with horror at the unfolding situation up there, particularly in the west of the state where the health system simply doesn't seem to be equipped to deal with the large spread of the outbreak there. A particular concern has been the outbreak in Wilcannia, which is located on the banks of the Darling River, some, some 965 kilometres to the west of Sydney. The township has a sizeable Aboriginal population uh, with low life expectancy, severe overcrowding and high rates of chronic disease. The town itself is still cut off from the outside world thanks to the devastating COVID outbreak and it only has a local shop operating on limited hours and basic supplies provided by a volunteer workforce. So our next guest has um, sought to find out how things are on the ground of the township. Carla Grant is the presenter, producer, and the journalist for the um, SBS National Indigenous Current Affairs Program, Living Black, focusing on issues concerning Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities within Australia. It is Carla's 18th year of producing and hosting the program, and I'm very, very pleased to say that she's on the line with us now. Carla, welcome to the mission.
2: Thank you so much, Daniel. Nice to be with you.
0: Uh, Describe to us the township of Wilcannia and the scale of the problem the mob is facing on the ground there with COVID?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, I've only just returned back from um, Wilcannia about a week ago now, where we spent seven days in the community. And um, it's pretty much the feeling there is one of confusion and anger and frustration. Um, You know, uh, what can I say? It's that the the community were yelling out or crying out for help um, over 18 months ago. Um, They... You know, they could foresee see that if COVID was to enter the town, if there was to be an outbreak in the town, in the community, um, it would be devastating. And so they were trying to, you know, they actually came up with a, an action plan um, to, you know, to stop. Um, any spread of the virus from coming into town. Um, you know, they wanted to go into self-imposed lockdowns. Um, they wanted to have alternative accommodation so that people could self-isolate safely. Um, you know, they wanted to stop um, out-of-towners from, from you know, coming into town and taking all their resources from the... You know, they've only got one little supermarket, the IGA, um, which you mentioned in your introduction. Um, yeah, there's not a lot there in the town. So people coming in, you know, like grey nomads and, and tourists were, were coming into the town, uh, taking up all the resources and, you know, they could see what was happening. So back then, like 18 months ago, they wanted to uh, put in um, measures to, um, you know, to keep people out, basically to protect themselves. And they put that, that action plan up to various levels of government, local government, state government, federal government, and unfortunately no-one listened. So um, the town was ignored.
0: So this is another example, and we come across them, and you would come across them uh, on a daily and weekly basis, Carla, of the Aboriginal community actually working to provide a solution and giving that solution to the authorities that be, and then ultimately having that solution um, ignored
2: correct yeah actually the town actually had their own solutions they knew what they needed to do they knew that if if covid um you know if there had to be an an outbreak of covid in the town they knew that it would be devastating and so they you know they had yeah exactly that they had solutions to prevent it from happening but um you know uh, the government ignored them and that's exactly how they feel now they feel very ignored and and this could all be, could have been prevented from happening if, um, so, you know, the government had acted earlier.
0: So we now find ourselves in a situation where it's absolute crisis management. The the, the virus has got out and spread amongst the community. Uh, the mm-hmm. New South Wales government has sent in stopgap measures like sending 30 motorhomes to provide accommodation for infected cases um, to isolate. What other services are available to residents to, to deal with the, with, the, with the outbreak at the moment?
2: Yeah, well, um, at the moment there there's a lot of volunteers in the in the um, community actually, you know, getting food out, food out. Sorry, um, you know, the IGA was closed at one stage because it was an exposure site, so they had very little resources, very little food and and vital supplies in the town. So um, they actually um, had a, a bunch of volunteers get together in the town and and um, um, you know they were distributing uh, food hampers. And, and, um, you know, vital supplies to to the town. And even some of the local um, men went out and did a a kangaroo hunt. So they um, bought in some kangaroo meat and were, you know, distributing that to to, um, many of the residents in the town just so that they could have fresh meat. And, um, yeah, because they didn't have any fresh meat or fresh veggies. It was just all sort of, you know... um, uh, canned food and dried sort of, you know, noodles and things like that. Um, but um, now there's a lot more, um, you know, they've got a lot more supplies coming in, a lot of donations from, you know, from various companies. So there's a lot more food in the town now. Um, of course, the the police, there's um, a lot more police in the town and um, the, um, the army and various other services like... Um, uh, Frontline workers have now come into the town. There's a big tent city that's set up um, to, um, you know, to to um, do vaccinations and. Um, all that sort of thing. But the, the town really, well, the community really feel like it's all too little, too late. I mean, why, you know, they're asking these questions. Why didn't the government take notice of them in the first place 18 months ago when they wanted to put measures in to stop this from happening? Um, why weren't people vaccinated earlier? Because now there's just, um, there's um, you know, they're doing a lot of vaccinations, trying to, you know, rushing around, trying to get people vaccinated and going door to door and that sort of thing. Um, but, the you know, the community is saying, why didn't they do this earlier? So they feel like, um, to use an, an analogy, the horse has bolted, sort of, you know, the, the gate's closed, but the horse has already bolted, and now they're they're playing catch-up with this.
0: And it's great that all those, you know, on paper, it's great that all those services are there, that the police are there, and that health professionals are there, and the army's there, but is the um, the the presence of the police and, and the army also having some sort of um, traumatic effect on the population there as well?
2: Yeah, well, I did ask. And actually, that um, you know, because as um, when I was observing um, all the volunteers with um, distributing food and, and water, um, I noticed that, yeah, there's a paddy wagon there um, and the police officers were filling that with water and I thought, you know, one time ago they would have been putting our mob in those paddy wagons and you know and now they're putting water in there and distributing that to the community so um yeah there there may have been some pushback but now you know i i guess you know the police are um you know there to, to help the community and and do what they can to play their part in um you know getting food and water out to to families because they're all in you know that the community is in lockdown, as is you know the rest of the state. So um, they're in lockdown as well, but they're also in in isolation because so many of the people in the town have COVID. So they can't leave their homes. They can't leave to go to Broken Hill, which is two hundred kilometres away, to go and get food and water and and you know supplies. They have to stay in their, their homes. They have to self isolate. So um, you know, so so you've got the police going. To homes delivering water and food, the army and um, many others in the community as well. Just every day, you know, mob in the community who are running around from house to house. Like Brendan Adams, he's um uh, works for the well, he's actually the manager of Wilcannia radio station, and um, he's just you know he's on call twenty four seven. He's just amazing. Like he's just going around from house to house, um, you know. Uh, delivering the kangaroo meat to mob and just checking up on people as well. Because at the start of this outbreak, um, you know, people who were COVID positive weren't being checked on. And, um, you know, many people that I spoke to were just were really, really scared and frustrated because they didn't know what was happening to them. Like, you know, mm. they'd seen all the reports, you know, COVID, all these people are dying and, you um, all that sort of stuff on social media. And they're thinking, well, what's going to happen to us? Like, what do we do, Um, you know, um, what's going to happen? Are we going to die? That's what Michael Kennedy, the um, chairperson of the Wilcannia Land Council said to me, because his family were the first to, um, you know, to get the virus in the town. And, you know, their little two-year-old daughter um, was the first um, COVID-positive patient and they got the text message and then a few days later they got um, their results back, the whole family, and they were all positive. And then it was a slow sort of um, reaction to, um, you know, to get uh, any advice from New South Wales Health um, as to what they needed to do. And they were just sort of sitting there thinking, well, what are, you know, what are we supposed to do Um there just was a lot of um, lack of information going out to people and yeah and as i said people weren't being checked on by the authorities as they should have been i can, so, <clears> I can
0: imagine. imagine how um i can imagine how i mean i can imagine how scary it is getting COVID full stop you know because there's yeah. just so much known, unknown in terms of, uh, you know, the prognosis as it applies to any given individual. Um, and I, I say that sitting here in the centre of Melbourne where I'm surrounded by about four or five major hospitals within a five kilometre rate radius. Um, but somewhere like Will Canyon where you just don't have that lack of service provision, um, it must be just next level. Um, what yes, What percentage so of what percentage of the population has actually contracted uh, COVID? And, and what does is, what is the population actually look like there in terms of demographics? Uh, is it an old population or a young population? What sort of what sort of yeah, uh, population cohort do we have?
2: It's a young population. Um, about 80% of the, the people in the town are Aboriginal, so it's a predominantly Aboriginal community. And they're now saying that um, it's more than one in six residents in the town has now been infected by COVID or with COVID. So that's a lot of people. You know, you think every, yeah. one in every six people has COVID. Um, I mean, I live, you know, in Sydney, and I, I haven't actually met anyone with COVID. I had to, you know, wasn't until I went out to Wilcannia and then, you know, suddenly there were COVID-positive people everywhere. Um, and yeah, it's a lot in in a community yeah. of like seven hundred people, when you've got over a hundred people with COVID, that that is a lot in a small community.
0: That must have been very confronting for you, for you um, on on the ground. This would probably be the first time you've covered a pandemic within within a local community, I, I, I guess. And then just all of a sudden be convoked, um, confronted with um, all these uh, people that have that have got COVID. How, how did you react to that personally?
2: Um, look, Daniel, to, to tell you the truth, I didn't really of think about it myself about um, obviously you know I knew I had to keep myself safe and my my crew um, and we did everything very very safely you know um, we had our um, safety plans um, you know um, in action and you know wore our face masks and gloves and and that sort of thing and and we social distanced um, because we were coming into contact with you know I interviewed many COVID positive patients so yeah we did have to be careful but at times I would just forget and I'd sort of go up closer to people and because I just wanted to, you know, talk to people and hear their stories and they really wanted to share their stories with us. They were so happy that we were there and um, very grateful that we had made the effort to go to the town and and talk to them and and hear their stories and hear about their concerns. So that sort of, you know, um, it was very risky for us, but I sort of, um, yeah, I sort of, that wasn't, uh, you know, to me it was about, Getting up close with the people and hearing their stories and and getting those stories out. So I kind of, yeah forgot about it for a minute there, <laughs> about the risk to myself. yeah, but um, it is. yeah.
0: You're listening to the mission. I'm speaking with the deadly uh, Carla Grant, the host of uh, Living Black, and just a reminder that um, her report from uh, on the ground in rural Kenya, uh, COVID crisis in rural Kenya premieres tonight at eight pm. So once you finish listening to this show, uh, turn the television on and uh, watch uh, um, Carla's uh, report. Um, a couple of questions before I let you go, Carla. Um, so what is being done now? You've 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 mentioned that there are um, a- additional efforts being put in place now to get the vaccine. Rate um, up in Will Canyon, but what, what does that actually look like?
2: Yeah, well, there are a lot more. Um, I believe it's probably um, when I did when I spoke to the um, CEO of the Far West Health District, at um, Agus, he said it was around fifty six percent, but I think. That was the first doses. So, you know, slowly it is increasing, the number of um, people vaccinated in the town because the army and, um, you know, they're going from door to door and they've set up, um, as I said, there's um, a lot of frontline workers there now who are getting people vaccinated and getting jabs in arms. So, um, you know, it's slowly increasing. Um, and as I said, there's a lot more food in the town now. They've got a lot of um, donations coming in from you know various organisations. People from right around the state have donated you know um, freezers and because they had that much food at one stage. Or actually, when I was um, there, that. Um, you know, it all started coming in that they didn't have enough room or enough refrigerators to keep all this food. So now there's a plentiful supply of food there, thank, thank goodness. And, um, yeah, it is, you know, it, they've still got a long way to go. I mean, you know, there were another four cases there today. It's up around, I think it's a, a 167 cases in the far west region and that's counting Broken Hill, but most of those cases are in Wilcannia. Um, so, I guess there must and, be
0: um, a level of apprehension too as the rhetoric from uh, leaders at both, both the state and, and federal level are really pushing hard on the 70% fully vaccinated um, yeah. uh, number. And the fact that there's talking about, you know, a Freedom Day and an opening up of the state, um, that that must be a little comfort to the people of Wilcannia at the moment.
2: Yeah, for them, it's no comfort at all, really, because, you know, um, as you know, our mob, you know, the the rates of vaccination are, are very, very low um, in comparison to the rest of the population. So we're playing catch up at the moment um, to get all our mob vaccinated. And, you know, I mean, they've been talking about Um, you know, doing sort of uh, going around to 30 communities and getting people vaccinated. I mean, all of this should have happened, um, you know, earlier this year when we were made, you know, uh, part of the 1A and 1B um, vaccination plan. Um, but you know, it's just all sort of happening in a rush now, and um, you know, for a Um, A community of people who were supposed to be made the priority, Um, you know, the government has failed on all levels when it comes to that.
0: Absolutely. It's actually quite scandalous. I mean, I I remember thinking back uh, uh, at the start of this year with great hope that, um, you know, 1A and 1B would kick in and and the communities and the cohorts that would, um, at most vulnerable at, um, you know having severe health complications if they uh, contracted the the virus, getting those doses um, first. Um, but what we're seeing here is just an abject failure of not only of uh, policy, but also of uh, delivery. So, um, Carla, thank you so much for, for um, going on the ground in you speaking to what has been a forgotten community. Um, if you want to uh, watch um, Carla's report, just watch Living Black, COVID Crisis in Kenya, which premieres tonight at 8pm, some 32 minutes from now. Um, but Carla, thank you so much for your work. Um, thanks for your um, commitment over, over years and years now. Um, thank, being, you. Lead, thank you. Leading the way for, for Indigenous um, journalists and, and media types. Uh, uh, may you long uh, reign
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> in your role. But thank you so much for uh, coming on the show tonight. It's really, really been, been a pleasure.
2: Daniel. Thank you for having me.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You listen to The Mission. My name is Daniel. uh, And on to tonight's uh, second guest. Uh, Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander man born on Larrakia country in Darwin. Shocking. Um, he's been uh, a war labourer from the age of 17 until he became an official union rep for the Maritime Union of Australia in his early 30s. He has a number of books out now, but his latest book, entitled Dear Sons, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons, Full disclosure: I am one of those who actually contributed a letter to the book, along with the likes of Stan Grant, Troy Kester, Joe Williams, and a whole bunch more. Is um, out now and available everywhere. So I thought, well, better get him on the show to uh, to talk about it. He is a friend of the show. So Thomas, uh, welcome back to the Mish.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Good to be back.
0: Congratulations on the book. It was no mean feat putting that together. There was lots of moving parts that you had to deal with. Um, where where did the uh, idea for the book uh, generate?
1: Oh well, it came from Tara June Winch, actually the Wiradjuri award-winning author of *The Yield*. I met her at the um, Perth Writers Festival, and after a long yarn about family and mob and all the rest, she said uh, that she thought I'd be good to a good person to write a book about fatherhood. I've got five kids, and um, and uh, I thought that uh, there was no way I was going to do that, you know, given. I knew it would be a hugely personal thing to do, and uh, I knew it's a very course. vulnerable thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, but after a couple of months, I decided you know it was something that was I, I needed to do.
0: It's, um, it's, a, it's a great collection and, and I've got the book here in front of me and it's um, in hard cover and the, the, the cover is beautiful and it's kind of surreal seeing um, <laughs> oneself um, in a mix of some of the, uh, the esteemed people that uh, have contributed towards the book. I guess in a way, uh, Thomas, uh, blackfellas and black men in particular – um, have received a bad rap in terms of the way that they are perceived, not only in the media, but by the broader community. And this book is some small step towards redressing the way that Aboriginal men are perceived.
1: Yeah, I think it's an important step because, I mean, really, it's been ever since colonisation that First Nations men have been demonised and and purposely disempowered in order to take advantage of uh, our families, you know, our labour, um, our women and, and our land. So, um, you know, even even myself, as a child in school, was taught that, uh, you know, my fathers, my forefathers, were savages and unintelligent, but white kids were taught that their forefathers were explorers and inventors and and our saviours. It's um, it's time to to turn that around and say, well, if we're the oldest living culture on the planet, then there's a lot to celebrate as
0: First Nations men. Absolutely. Um, did you have to go to any sort of great efforts to convince some of the writers, or did um, people come on the board fairly readily?
1: I was. Um, people came on board pretty, uh, pretty readily. Uh, there was a couple of people that didn't end up doing it because they were busy and and had yep. had too much else on. But uh, you know, uh, like yourself, you you didn't hesitate really. You, you know, you you saw the importance of of writing. About uh, you know masculinity and and these things, and you know it really comes through in your letter. It's it's such a beautiful letter you've written, Daniel.
0: Oh, thanks, brother. I was when you asked me, um, I because I'd written um, the the essay, the Horn Prize essay around um, dad and and uh, his, his passing. I I, I kind of made up my mind then that I wasn't going to write any more about it. But um, when you called up and um, you, you framed the way that. Uh, the, the book was going to be published, and, and why you were doing it, um, it, it. It immediately occurred to me that it was kind of like a no brainer. Um, after that, because I don't know about you, Thomas, but you know, I grew up in a um a small country town, and I've had to, you know, over the, <laughs> over the over the over the you know process of decades over the over the years, I've had to sort of like breed that sort of toxic masculinity out of myself. Um, over the years to, to become um, a better person because you, you realize until, you know, not until it's much later that you're actually in a norm where some of this stuff is just um, uh, so toxic. So I saw the book and and my little contribution to it as, as a way of, you know, exploring some of those issues, but also making sure that, um, you know, we get down on the record that that isn't the norm. Um, the, the, the norm that is set in the in the small towns and and the football clubs and some of the the, the male culture about the place isn't acceptable um, and this is just one small example of how um, you know masculinity can be be at its best is that is that something that you were trying to get to at the heart of the book
1: yeah yeah so it was about celebrating first Nations men but at the same time uh, I knew that a book by men, um, writing to their sons and their fathers had to, it, it, it had to address um, the, um, you know, these that, that men, uh, you know, the perpetrators of gender violence, the greatest perpetrators of it, and that we have a, a duty to call it out. Um, and, and that's what we do in this book as well. Um, importantly, uh, we also make it clear that this is not an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander male problem. As you know, yes. things like uh, you know the Northern Territory intervention, a Prime Minister basically announcing to the country that that this was an Aboriginal issue, and um, this is an issue that um, that all men need to deal with, and and the great hypocrisy, really, of uh, of what happened in the intervention there, was that um, you know we know it's it's rife in Parliament. There's a there's a hugely toxic male culture in the centre of Parliament where those very decisions were made, and. Um, yeah, this is an important thing that this book addresses as well.
0: It was really, really was the intervention that sort of tried to tar the the the, the brush um, in terms of painting Aboriginal men as 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 the problem in this. And of course, men are perpetrators, but they are perpetrators across all sorts of walks of life. And the intervention itself painted it as a as a race problem. And we're still trying to, uh, I guess, try and ourselves away from from that perception to to this to this very day.
1: Yeah, well, you write about it, uh, you know like about the country town that you mentioned. Johnny Little, um, you know he is in he's from the cent- central Australia, Johnny Little, and he writes about being there at the front line. And as an Aboriginal man uh, seeing the suspicious eyes on him, you know at that time, it was a really tough time. Um, how we saw, you know, young men carrying their babies in Alice Springs and, and people, you know, uh, you know, non-Indigenous people looking at them like their children needed to be protected from them. But it wasn't only in Central Australia and the Northern Territory. This is something that, um, you know, that amplified that prejudice around the country and um, it's high time that people knew that First Nations men have a lot to celebrate. We have so much to be proud of. And uh, and you know it's a, it's a big part of
0: Australia, you know. Yeah, we we recognise uh, faults in ourselves, but we also recognise faults in others, and, and we're committing ourselves to to call it out when we see it. Um, well, yeah, and we're, not, um, we're being unashamed about that. Yeah, Charlie King is one of the writers in the yeah. book, and he 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 did the
1: No More campaign against domestic violence in the Northern Territory. Um, Donnie Little, who I mentioned, did wonderful work. Uh, you know about uh, breaking down, uh, you know, these sorts of, uh, of issues and, and you know addressing our social issues. But always, people need to remember, and this is something that comes through strongly in the in the letters as well, is that you know the you know the conditions where those social issues um, you know uh, uh, become uh, are created by. Uh, on purpose, you know, again, to mm. steal our land, to take advantage of our labour and our um, and our families.
0: Yeah, and we see that, you know, ultimately end up in the uh, over-representation in, incarceration rates for both Aboriginal men and women. When you have a system stacked against you and um, there to basically trip you up, then that's going to be the ultimate um, case. Uh, if, you know, having gone through the book um, uh, painstakingly yourself as as the editor, would you say that there were any sort of common themes or threads throughout the various letters?
1: Oh, If I was to name one, I would say it's love, you know. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. just the the great expression of love from, you know, these men to their sons and their fathers or both in many of the letters, uh, and to them and their mothers, you know, and and their families, it's that is the the strongest common theme through this book, and it's just so powerful coming from these men. You know, there's a great vulnerability um, that each of them offer, and um, and it's such a generous thing.
0: Yeah, there's so much generosity. Um, through through the, some of the, the letters that have come through, all of the letters that have come through. And um, again, people exposing themselves and, and being open and vulnerable to get it down on paper for all to read is um, a very, very generous act. Now, you have another book out as well, because uh, why not? <laughs> and it's called um, Freedom Day, and that looks at the 55th anniversary of Vincent Lingari and the 200 Aboriginal protesters who bravely walked away from the pastoral industry, which had controlled their lives for, um, for uh, 80 years. Now, you co-wrote that letter, didn't you? I'm sorry, co-wrote that book.
1: Yeah, uh, the other author is Rosie Smiler, and she's one of Vincent Lingari's granddaughters. And when I wrote my first book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, uh, Rosie you might remember is one of the people who is interviewed in that book. And yes. she said to me at the end of the interview that she wanted the the children in her community, you know, the following generations of Guringi, to to learn the story of her grandfather and, and be proud of of um, you know, what their people achieved. And so soon after that we set about writing this children's book, um, Freedom Day, Vincent Mingari and, and the Story of the Wave Hill Walk Off and it's something that she's very proud of. Uh, her community is really proud of. We read it in the community in Kalcarengi to the school children uh, a few weeks ago. It's such an important uh, story, and it's it's a greatest. You know, it's a story as great as Eureka. You know, yep. the, the the bravery of, of the people that walked off and how they they stood their ground. You know, and the courage of of that fight. You know, is 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 as um, astounding as. You know, Gallipoli, you know, it's just, um, it's, it should be a great Australian story that everybody knows.
0: Well, that's that's the thing that I keep trying to point out to people as we go along the way, is that some of these First Nation resistance stories, uh, they don't belong just to us. They they are Australian stories that are, should be celebrated because they are there and their are acts of bravism and um, courage that um, have not only bettered, bettered our people, but they've been there, and those actions have um, been for the betterment of the broader, broader community as well. And this is a classic example of that.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And there's so much to learn from these stories, right? And one of the things that this uh, children's book teaches is how we learn from the Wave Hill walk-off. Um, That even though uh, Vincent Lingari and his people, uh, you know, in that historic moment when Gough Whitlam travelled there and and handed back a handful of soil, um, you know, poured it into Vincent Lingari's hand, um, you know, winning them some land rights um, back, uh, that wasn't enough is what we learned Mm. from that story. It was was a a wonderful moment. It was a a success, um, you know, a huge feat of, of courage, um, but they still, even though they had land back, they were not able to affect the laws and policies. So Rosie and I then say, you know, and the Gurindji community are saying through this book that the next step, the unfinished business, is for us to have a
0: constitutionally enshrined voice. Now, I was going to ask you about that before uh, I let you go, because it would be very remiss of me. It's uh, 10 to wait. Uh, you listen to the mission. I'm speaking with uh, Thomas Mayer, um, who was uh, amongst being an author, a staunch campaigner for the uh, Uluru Statement from from the Heart. Where are we in terms of that at the moment, Thomas? Um, you know, they're talking about, a still talking about a legislative response and not something that's enshrined in the Constitution. Um, just give us a quick overview of where we are and what are the chances are of actually getting the Uluru Statement from the Heart to be, I guess, enshrined in the Constitution as it was intended. Well,
1: we're still waiting for the um, voice advisory group to hand down their report on on the co-design of the model. Um, And yes, the coalition is still uh, not committing to a referendum to enshrine the voice. Um, They're certainly not going to be able to legislate at this term now. Ken Wyatt has said as much. And so we're just doing everything that we can to put pressure on all political parties to make it an election commitment that in the next term of government uh, of the federal government will go to a referendum and um, we've just had some, uh, you know, some really positive polling that uh, the, the support, both in the indigenous community, there was a sample of that, and the broader community, uh, you know, the, the, the support continues to rise. This is something that even through a pandemic, with all the other priorities that people are facing and challenges, that this, that more and more people are saying they'll
0: vote yes in a referendum for what we call for here. I think. Um, I think. There is a, a growing awareness across the broader community that there is unfinished business in this country, and again, the Luru statement has been gifted to the Parliament and to the broader community as a as a solution to you know addressing that um, unfinished business. So it's really pleasing to see that uh, there is um, growing growing support for it. Um, Thomas, thanks for your time. Uh, once again. Um, Dear Son, letters and reflections from First Nations fathers and sons is out in all good bookstores. I encourage you to go to uh, independent bookstores to to purchase it. And uh, Freedom Day is also available um in good bookstores about the place too. Um keep up the good work, brother. Um keep being prolific. Um is there any other projects you've got in the in the pipe works before I let you yeah, go? Yeah, working
1: on yeah, I'm working on some other books. I'm really enjoying it, you know. Um uh, one about the Torres Strait flag is one me and uh, one Bolo there from from the Torres Strait are working on, so I'm excited about yeah, that absolutely. one. But but dear son is the one that I'm most excited about. I think it's a, a really special book, and your it's a nice piece book. of work.
0: Yeah, no. thanks, brother. Take care. Thank you, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives. Of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.